You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For the probably one or two people here that don't know, I'm Rena Weissman. I'm a board member with Variety Children's Charity in whose lovely preview room theater we're sitting in for tonight's SF and SF. Um, I just want to just a couple things, little housekeeping things, point out, um, first of all, for the record, we had our movie night on Wednesday, and thanks to a very healthy turnout, we raised over $400 for the charity that night, so not that it's a challenge to you all tonight, but we, <laughs> we certainly appreciate uh, everything you give, and that's just an ongoing thanks for everybody who participates in the program, too. Um, our next SF and SF will be on June, Saturday, June 20th, and we're very, very excited to present the Brazen Hussies, comprised of Pat Murphy, Lisa Goldstein, and Michaela Rusner herman And uh, so that'll be Saturday, June 20th. And before that, Wednesday, June 10th, we have a real kick-ass uh, classic sci-fi night. We'll be showing the quiet earth and on the beach, and we will provide hankies and tissues and liquor. So you can drown your sorrows at the, uh, the end of the world now. Uh, so thanks again to you all for being here tonight, and I'd like to turn this over to Terry Bisson. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I just want to remind everybody to turn on your cell phones in case you get a better offer. And um, it gives me, uh, we have two very interesting authors tonight. And I'll, without further, our, our drill is we'll have the readings and we'll take a break. And then we come back and sort of collectively piss and moan about science fiction. <laughs> so we will start with, uh, with the readings. And... Uh, uh, it, the first reader I'd like to introduce tonight has made a reputation for herself without, in the old-fashioned science fiction way, by pu not publishing a novel, but <laughs> by writing, by publishing short fiction. Although I understand now that she's working on a novel, but we'll find out more about that later. Uh, she's written uh, poetry. She's written short fiction. She's written how-to erotica. I understand and want to hear more about that and has written and has written criticism and um and so without further ado i would like to introduce heather shaw thanks Terry. oh and one other thing heather also it was one of the editors of a great little zine called flytrap which i was uh, along with uh, uh along with her partner and uh and I was uh, I was pleased to be publishing Flat Trip, and I never got my $10. No? No. Oh. But we'll talk about that later. Okay, we will. Um, so <laughs> I'd like to give you Heather Shaw. Hi. Okay. Um, so the story I'm going to read for you tonight is um, called Little Match Girl. Uh, the thing you need to know about this story, well, there's a couple things. Uh, it was published in a an anthology called Tumbarumba at the end of last year. Uh, it's actually, Tumbarumba is an anthology that is a uh, <laughs> Firefox extension. So you download it onto your computer. You'll be reading, say, CNN, and then all of a sudden a, a sentence will not make any sense at all. And if you mouse over it, you can s click on it. You click on it, you get a little bit more of the story. Click on it a little bit more. And then the third time you click, it 
uh, reloads the page with the story um, in the style of the page, in the format of the page. Um, and I think there were maybe 10 stories in it. So even if you download this extension, you might not get to read my story. Uh, just it's, it's complete chance whether or not a particular story comes up. Um, this was this anthology was edited by Ben Rosenbaum and Ethan Ham, and how did I miss this one? Yeah, it's, it, well, that's why I wanted to read this because I don't think enough people have heard about this <laughs> anthology, um, and it's just it's such a neat idea. Although it'll totally change the way you if you're reading a book and the sentence just doesn't make sense to you, I always want to click on it now because I'm sure it's a tumbarumba. Um, so, and you can disable, it's not, it doesn't like break your browser or anything. You can turn it on or off or disable it on one page, but it's kind of a, they think the subtitle is a frolic of intrusions. So you have these stories that just kind of pop into your day and you can, you know, you can read it or not. It's up to you. Um, but it's a, it's a neat little anthology and, um, you know, kind of more conceptual art as well as an anthology, uh, which I really like that about it. And actually, I, when I submitted the story to it, I had no idea what Tumba Rumba was. They wouldn't tell me um, until it came out. So um, I'm I glad I liked it. it. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you either. <clears throat> and the other thing you need to know about the story is um, well, its title is Little Match Girl. And match is spelled with the at sign. And that's, you know, it's a visual clue in the, when you're reading it uh, that you need to know it kind of comes up once or twice in the story. Okay. Little Match Girl. A new shipment of Tweak must have hit the mission over the weekend. M kept her eye on the woman in front of her who was shaking and staggering across the sidewalk. At a distance, the woman almost looked as if she were listening to some experimental music, her erratic movements accompanied by unheard notes, brilli brill brilliantly interpreting difficult tonalities. But as M got closer, the absence of headphones and the glazed eyes shattered the illusion. The woman staggered and shuddered and muttered and squatting and straightening, drifting across M's path. M did her best to miss the addict as she passed, and the woman nearly stumbled into her even so. This close, the burnt metal smell was nearly overpowering the other common mission smells, wine, vomit, phlegm, and feces. The woman must have felt M pass near as her drug dance took on a swatting movement, and she began shrieking and flailing as if assaulted by a swarm of bugs. M hurried on, only stopping once she was at the light on the corner to glance back. Other pedestrians were crossing the street to avoid the tweaking woman. Tweakers were like human bombs on random courses over the city sidewalks. Coming near, as Im had done, set them on a faster course, but it was even more dangerous to touch one. They could rip you to shreds, and they gripped with more strength than their bone structure could take, breaking their fingers but not letting go. Im had only seen such an interaction from across the street once, but she'd had nightmares about it for months afterwards. She had to jump through the drug flight patterns of several more tweakers before finally making it to the lobby doors of her day job. It wasn't that Im disapproved of drug use. You just had to be savvy about which drugs you took. Back before she had to get a day job, she was a match girl, much to the, to the delight of the boys on the club scene. Match wasn't a wimpy drug, but it didn't turn you into a murderous street zombie either. It was also expensive, a designer where it's at drug that the tweakers just couldn't afford. She still vividly recalled the last time she took Match, the night before she found out that her father not only lost his job, but lost his pension as well. Her best friend Nira had scored a full matchbook, so they splinted several times during the night. 
Matchbooks looked similar to the old-fashioned fire starters her grandfather used to pick up in bars. But instead of fat red heads, match was pointed at its blue ends, which were tipped with a euphoric drug. They each ripped off a matchstick and shoved the pointed tip into their upper arm, wedging the tiny piece of wood just under the skin, where it would release the drug for the next three hours, keeping them on an even high. Since they were flush that night, they did both arms. They wore skimpy tank tops so their matches would show. The little rectangular bump and smear of blood was a, single, a, sing, a signal to other match users, making it easier, easier to match up. <laughs> After splinting, they had 20 minutes to get to the club. Nira hailed the macabre, scowling at the cabbie who waggled their eyebrow, his eyebrows at their match wounds. Not for you, and we're not burning yet, so don't even think about trying. We're going to the Flint tonight, and don't try to go the long way. We're not tourists. The cabbie returned her scowl and pulled out into the street, driving directly but dangerously, weaving in and out of traffic and screeching to a halt in front of the club. As Nira tossed him his fare, he said, Have fun, little sluts. Old fart, scoffed Inma. They were match girls, not sluts. No one these days makes the two up. <laughs> the music hit them full in the face as they entered the club, bumping hard and fast and making their upper arms itch as it helped to bring on the drug. Most of the inside of the club was made to look like the inside of a huge wed redwood tree with gnarls of wood for benches along one side and a tall burl of wood making a bar along a wall. Around the inside of the tree was a ramp leading to little nooks rising in a spiral to the toward the top of the room. It was hard to tell from the bottom how many of these were occupied since they all dipped lower than their openings so people wouldn't accidentally roll out during matching. <laughs> for now, Nira and M headed out to the dance floor. Everyone was beautiful. Im swayed her hips, threw her head back and forth to the beat, but kept her arms down, crossed in front of her sometimes, the better to signal her intention. Soon a boy with a match mark in his bicep came up and started grinding against her. He felt wonderful, soft and supple and strong, and as she push pushed her body into his, she felt as if they were melting together. A good match, he shouted over the beat. It sounded to Emma like he used her mouth to say this, which did indeed in indicate a good match. She nodded her consent, and they used one another's legs to walk themselves up the spiral. They peered down into cubbies, but the first few turns were all occupied by earlier matches. It was near the top they finally found their own little nook to fall into. M melted into the guy, became him, as they shed their clothing and began matching up. She felt the blood rush to his penis which felt as if it were hers, and marveled at the feel of her breasts, which felt as if they were his, under his, her hands. She loved this feeling of being the other person during sex, of knowing what it felt like to plunge a cock into a willing girl, her softness against firm angles of her borrowed boy body. It was a sensation that was disorienting at first, and that some claimed made you gay, but M never bought that. She only liked feeling her own body through someone else and had no interest in, say, having unmatched sex with anyone other than boys. This one time she'd had matched sex with another woman, it wasn't nearly as good as it was with men. She liked this feeling of, she liked this feeling of other and she pitied the conservatives who didn't know how sex felt for their partners. She felt strongly that matching up made her a better lover overall. It was, the, it was early in the morning when her last matchstick wore off and she practically rolled down the ramp to the main floor to find Nira. They giggled to one another as they compared matchups, stumbling outside to hail a cab home.
The next day, Em got up around noon, pulling on her robe to hide her match marks from her mother, even though she wouldn't say anything about them. Her mom had had cancer when Em was a baby and was one of the first recipients of the breakthrough cure back before they discovered the side effects. Now she was in permanent remission from the cancer, but she was also in permanent remission from reality. It was only five years later that she'd stopped talking, and by the time M was 10, her mother was completely voided, not talking, not reacting to anything, only going through a daily routine and autopilot. She would get up and get dressed, sit at the table, eat when food was put in front of her, use the bathroom shower, and sit on the sofa until it was time to eat again, eventually making her way back to the bedroom to go to sleep. It was sort of like living with an unhelpful robot. But M thought she saw her mother notice things, such as her match marks, and she didn't want to risk upsetting her, even if she never felt the consequences. She was glad she'd covered up because her father was sitting at the dining room table this morning with her mother, even though it was Wednesday. He looked up at her when, he came in, when she came in the dining room. Sit down, Emily. I have some bad news. M sat, nervous. He knew she went out with her friends most nights, but she was pretty sure he didn't know about the match, and she didn't want to know what he'd do if he found out, either. I was laid off yesterday, he said. He sat there for a moment, then put his head in his hands. Im's stomach growled in the stretch of silence that followed, but she didn't feel much like eating. I don't know how to say this, Emily, so I'll... Well, the company's having financial trouble, and... So even though I'm over retirement age and have worked there for 37 years, there's no pension. The money we have right now is what I managed to put away to help, off help offset caring for your mother after I died, which honestly isn't enough even for the three of us to live on, let alone send you to college next fall. Chills shivered over the outer layer of M's skin. <clears throat> she swallowed. Dad, if I can't go to college, I can't get an unmatched job. I know, Em, and I'm too old to get a job. No one hires in new over the age of 40 these days, let alone 60. Honey, I hate to ask you this, but... And then, to Em's horror, he broke into ragged sobs. Em's first few weeks at the corp were terrifying. She'd never even walked through this part of town before, so the tweakers set her nerves on edge before she'd even gotten there. She entered the lobby where a snotty receptionist had handed her a number to pin to her shirt and told her to go to the 28th floor. She sat down on a folding chair with the other new hires, each one younger than her and hipper too, happier too. Her father had called in his last few favors to get M hired in as a jacker at her age. Corporations like to hire in at 15. Kids that age recovered from the surgery much better than 18-year-olds like M. She'd been on a college track, which meant eventually she would have been a manager or even a jack surgeon. Only the poor kids dropped out sophomore year to get the jack surgery. She glanced around the room and was relieved that she didn't recognize anyone from her high school. They kept her in the recovery ward with other kids during surgery, though M had to stay a week longer than her first group and ended up joining another class altogether. The managers grumbled about it, throwing off their numbers. They'd had to bump some poor kid back a week to make room for her in the new class, and now had a gap in her original group. It was not a good start. So she did her first real week at work without going home to try to make it up to the corp to get on the manager's good side again, though it didn't really work. The first time she swallowed the feed pills, which were supposed to make her body adapt more easily to the desk, desk chair jacking into the back of her neck, she threw them up before they took effect. 
She screamed as the chair jacked in anyway soon after, and they'd had to stop work and call a technician. She was on manual jack-in for weeks before they finally trusted her to keep the drugs down and jack-in automatically. Jacking in was horrible, and the feed was the opposite of her experiences on match. It drew in her focus so tight she wasn't even aware of the room around her or even of herself. She became the columns of numbers, of code, focused of the, on the minutiae she would nor never have noticed normally. The narrow fo focus, or maybe it was just the feed itself for the jacking in, gave her throbbing headaches. She had to sit and refocus her eyes on the greater world around her before attempting to walk home after jacking out. For the first week, she just stayed at work, colliding with walls on her way to sleep in a cot in the break room to adjust to the sensation of coming down. She was exhausted even when she started coming home at nights, barely more active than her mother. Her father was pathetically kind to her, grateful and ashamed that his daughter had to go to a jack job to support his family. He tried to get a job driving a cab, cleaning a school, anything that didn't require jacking, mm -hmm. but no one would hire him. He spent his days reading news feeds, trying to organize a legal case to, f to sue for his pension back, and would occasionally tell him about how it might happen if she could go to school, but she didn't even want to hear it anymore. It was after the first year on the job that M finally got her vacation. By this point, her father didn't even try to suggest a family vacation, but encouraged M to do whatever she wanted. You've more than earned it, honey. So M went and found Nira, hoping her old friend had a break in her classes and access to some match. No one does match anymore, M. That was like three at drugs ago. We're gonna do this new one I just tried last week called Flame. It's the most amazing thing you've ever felt. M wanted to cry. It was only second it was only the second day of her seven day vacation, and she'd been really looking forward to the freedom of being someone else for a few hours or even for a few days. Can't she get some match for old times' sake? don't want match if no one else is doing it. What's the point of that? Nira asked. She had a point. Besides, Flame connects you with everyone, not just some guy you pick up at the club. You'll see. Don't worry about having to afford it on a jacker salary either. It's on me. Come on, it'll set you free, make you forget about that horrible day job and everything. It's more than those poor kids you work with get on their vacations. They went together to the dealer's house. He barely recognized M, whose skin was dull and hair limp from too much feed, and when he realized who she was, he looked at her rather suspiciously. You don't have a day job where you feed, do you? He asked before handing over the brown paper baggie with the drug in it. Nira snorted and answered for her. What do you think, she's a jacker? She said it was like it was some nasty bug. Please, M's where it's at. She's one of us. She looks tired. She's just been partying too hard. She's cool, I swear. Because I don't sell flame to jackers. It's just not. Look, she's fine. It just gives the flame already. Back at her house, Nira opened the bag and pulled out a tiny glass vial filled with an iridescent liquid which pulsed and swirled and changed colors. It was one of the most gorgeous things Emma had ever seen. She took it from Nira, cupping it in her hand, transfixed by the beauty of it. Pinched the lid, then snorted. it. M looked up at Nira slowly, reluctant to tear her gaze away from the liquid. Nira laughed at her. It's how you fix with this stuff, M. Pinch the lid, put it up your nose, and snort it. Oh. M continued to cradle the vial, unwilling to part with such lovely colors in such an inelegant way. It seems a shame to put something so pretty up my nose. 
Swallow it, shove it up your ass, pour it down your ear. Are you gonna fix or not, Em? Em sighed, pinched the tip of the tiny glass container and smiled as the colors slowly swirled out, tickling at her nose. She put her face in the colors, exclaiming over the brilliant hues that now seemed to surround her. Pink strands found their way up her nose, blue ribbons streamed in her ears, orange tears flowed backwards into her eyes, purple ran down her throat. She could smell orange blossoms and chocolate chip cookies, new book smell, car exhaust, wet dog, new baby, salt, burning metal, sweat, shampoo, the stuff they used to mop up her elementary school with. <laughs> she had expected a falling or a floating sensation, but instead she felt herself expanding, her borders dissolving and her substance, herself drifting out, unconfined, free to float away like the colors did when she'd opened the vial. She was aware of Nira, touched her mind, saw through her eyes for a moment. She could see herself, no, her shell, sinking to its knees on the soft carpet of Nira's bedroom. How small and sad she looked there, how limited. She was distinctly aware of the world stretching away from her and enveloping her, and she shot out, exploring, discovering, remembering. She touched minds in their shells, tasting their different textures until she saw the pattern, saw how each shell was only a part of the fractal, how they all fit together and expanded on the same theme. Here was her house with the confined consciousness of her parents stuck neatly within. She felt the sadness of her father, his despair at feeling useless and old. She saw the caged mind of her mother throwing itself against its shell, desperately trying to communicate with her father, but trapped inside, silent and invisible. She wondered briefly if flame would let her mother out. As she grew, she felt more than human consciousness reaching out to her. She felt the angry fear of alley cats, the delight of a domesticated dog pleasing its master, the hunger of the pigeons. A deciduous tree native to the Midwest cried out for water. A cactus mused about pricking a nearby toddler. <laughs> Soon rocks sang their slow song to M, a bass line under the high giggle of, wa of the running water. Even man-made things, houses, trains, trash, vibrators, jewelry, joined in the great fractal ruckus of the beautiful, beautiful, vast one world. M lost herself, her part of the pattern for a time. She hadn't really worried about getting back as she was too distracted by the lovely, lovely revelation that everything was one great thing. But after a time, she began to miss her part and she worked on finding a path back to where she fit, where she'd left her shell that she used to play out her small, tiny part of the whole. She wasn't at Nira's house any longer, nor was she at home. On her way to check work, she flew past the tweakers, their erratic, dangerous dance, beautiful from her new vantage point, creating exquisite counterpoints in the great pattern. She saw how a few of them weren't on tweak at all, but were the result of an unlikely but horrible chemical reaction. And there was where she found herself. There was her shell moving in counterpoint, staggering along the street, swaying and vacant, being dodged by her young co-workers as they hurried down the street to work. It was an eerie dance, and she watched her body for a long while. She thought she should panic, but it was hard to. When the sun was so beautiful on the rooftops and the seagulls were talking excitedly about the coming winter, she spent a while among them, and when she looked for her body again, it was gone. She thought of looking for it again, but then beyond the quay, there was the sea, the shining, rolling sea going on and on.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.